Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. A little quote from this week's guest, life is just this ridiculously cool journey and trying to be more helpful, I think, is what it's all about. Fuck yes, Adam Hansen. And helpful he has been throughout his career, specializing in product innovation, and now, more broadly, pushing people outside their own biases and self-imposed barriers to actualize their creativity. Charismatic Hansen is fired up about informing passionate minds that the world needs their ideas. Hansen talks about the inspiration that he draws from in his own career and the things that keep his mind reeling with unique innovations. This amazing author and thinker is exactly why our podcast is so much more than the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Here is episode 254. Our athlete nation, that's text giggling. <laughs> it's that time again. To bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme. For another episode of the premier podcast in, in strength, strength and, and conditioning. It's another lovely day here in Austin, Texas. Luke, We're, how is the weather here? Uh, great question, John. It smells it's, like a bonfire outside. Ah, it's part, it's is that because we've been burning shit? Uh, the high will be 70, and we're currently at 64. So, beautiful day. In the hill country of Texas. The day after we lit a 20-foot fire to uh, burn the brush on the ranch. I got to say, I was a little nervous. Um, I'm, I have no problem telling you, like, uh, with my bias... That uh, uh, burning shit, like kind of, you know, because I burned a lot of things, my, myself included. When I saw that thing go up and like I, I saw Dave basically just hitting it with the hose, like it, it reminded me of somebody shooting a BB gun at an elephant. Yes, absolutely. I was like, let's go get a tractor. I'm going to go borrow a skid steer. So if we got to put this thing out, I can fucking do it quick order. Mm -hmm. So here's what you need to know, people. Everybody has their eyebrows. For now, Tex. Oh, no. <laughs> no one burnt their arm hair, head hair, or facial hair, Thank or God. eyebrow hair off. We made it out alive. We are here, ready to chit-chat. But first, ladies and gentlemen, we are proud sponsors of Summer Strong 11. So Ooh. if you don't know what Summer Strong 11 is, Sorenex, our friends, our family, uh, they helped sponsor our Power Athlete Symposium and also our, rigged out our gym, right? So we work with their uh, the base camp Super base camp. I don't fucking know. It's awesome. What's the official product name? Do you know? Uh, I think base camp. Yeah, we're on we're on the base camp deal, but they no. Have... I think the racks are called base camps. Okay, but we also have yeah. a lap pull down. I mean, yeah, that's and not lap pull down, which is a big deal. It's kind of they a big have deal. their annual. <clears throat> what started off is is Bert Soren's dad, Pop Soren, his birthday party. As I understand, eleven years ago, it started off just kind of barbecue, bang some weights, but it's turned into one of the premier events, clinics. Symposiums in Lexington, South in Carolina. In Lexington, South Carolina, in strength and conditioning. And they got a speaker lineup of like 20 people. We're going to be there. Uh, we're happy to support this thing. If you are even thinking about, they have NSCA credits as well, don't they? And, and CSCCA. And CSCCA. So if you're one of those guys or gals, or you just have a passion for this stuff, this is one of the best shows in town. Uh, you know, our bias is clearly towards our Power Athlete Symposium clearly but it rive i would say it rivals it man it's awesome to go out and get the flavor from these guys because it's authentic it's pure it's a family environment people are there to just crack the bone suck the marrow out of life right so if you even think you might want to go you got to check it out go to www.summerstrongexpo.com wait people i'm Double checking. So you have speakers, and then we have a, a combine. So you get the opportunity to compete in 
weightlifting, speed stuff, jumps, throws, and all this, a lot of fun opportunity. So, and that takes place on... Day one, day one is Friday, May 18th. Yeah, and first off, the Strength Museum at their facility is awesome mm-hmm. as well. So, people, summerstrongexpo.com, check it out. Uh, it, we're going to be there. We're going to be main hustling or side hustling out there? Oh, on vacation. Yeah, yeah, it'll be our vacation. John may be side hustling because I can find. I bet we'll find him in the shop welding or rigging something up back there. Oh, uh, I'd like to try to build something. I don't know. Maybe, um, I don't know. Maybe we'd show up with a bunch of parts and build some shit. Anyways, we are absolutely stoked. We're going to be there. You should be there, too. Uh, anything else we wanted to talk about? Maybe a date to my wedding for Tex? Oh, yeah. Hey, like ladies that. and gentlemen, if we have anybody interested in uh, you know going with Tex to Luke's wedding, the please send... The testing, the bachelor will take place at Summer Strong 11. <laughs> please send all submissions to Callie at PowerAthleteHQ.com with the uh, subject uh, Tex-a-Daisy. Tex a daisy hyphens included. Yeah, hyphen day like kind of like ups, uh, whoopsie daisy and upsie daisy. We have Tex a daisy. Listen, people, we'll get we're past it. <laughs> we're on to the show. We have an amazing guest, and if you are a person, you need to sincere a person, <laughs> a human. Uh, do we have non-humans on this thing? Uh, maybe there's penguin. We have big penguin following, big down, penguin south. following down south. Well, I also know that when uh, Callie goes to work, she does play Power Out Radio on repeat for her cats. Ah, yes, that is correct. And all 47 of them are dedicated (laughs) listeners. We have a show today that's going to crack your head open and change your cognitive cognitive view on life. Literally. 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 The boom. We have the VP of Innovation and Innovation Process Consultant at Ideas to Go on the show, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Hansen. Why don't we just start, Adam? Why don't you give us a quick, uh, quick or long, however you want to go. Actually, you know, this is your show today. So <laughs> why don't you just give us a background on who you are, how you got to where you are. Uh, you know, go as far back as you want. Go to the womb. We don't care. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, let's see if I can give you a little bit more background, but, but keep it, uh, keep a pace and keep it interesting. Uh, I was always a pretty creative kid. Um, I, you know, I'm a nerd, you know, so what, what can I say? I, I, I love, I'm super curious. I love learning. Um, flash forward to grad school when, you know, it seems like a good idea to go to get an MBA and for whatever, I mean, you look back now and you go, (laughs) what was my justification? You sound just like my wife. (laughs) Like, yeah, my mom or uh, my wife's like, I have an MBA to be a housewife and raise three crazy kids. <laughs> She's like, and all the time she'll be going through and be like, I have an MBA. And oh, that's like our joke now. Oh, that's great. But it's <laughs> like, you know, we make some of our most important decisions based on such scant input. Uh, but then, hey, part of what's cool about humans is we're that strand of DNA that that knows how to hack our environment. Uh, we can we can find any situation and figure out a, some some way to make it better. And so um, in grad school, I knew I was going to take, uh, you know, innovation at some point, some new product development class or something, but I had no idea how truly just life altering it would be for me. And uh, I took that first class, second semester of my first year of, uh, of the MBA program, and just every bell and whistle possible went off for me. And I thought, really, if you could do this, why wouldn't you do this? You know, I'm just a, I'm a punk kid from Idaho. Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I was naive. I, I just didn't know uh, what was even, 
you know, on, on the menu for selection for me. But once I um, spoke to my professor and he made the case you really could do your entire career in innovation, that pretty well settled things for me. I thought, I think, I'm, I, think I have some skills there. I think that's something that's re- of, of enough interest to me that I can see going after it, digging in, becoming better, really you know, going through all that work necessary to become better. And, and previous experience as a self-taught musician had, had already helped me understand that if you love anything sufficiently, you're going to be willing to suck at it for a while. And that's what it's all about. And, and it's just, you know, for me, trend matters so much more than snapshot. Where I am in the moment isn't nearly as important as where I am relative to where I was and where this arc that I can kind of foresee is going to take me. So, yeah, I mean, I just dug in and just read and read and tried and tried and experimented and failed and experimented and failed and, and actually believed the, this talk about failing forward. So um, I was lucky just even right out of grad school, my first job and then on has always been in innovation. My first job was new product development manager at a small kitchen electrics company uh, in the uh, Twin Cities area. And so I spent the first half of my career on the client side and then the last 16 plus years then with ideas to go. I was a client of ideas to go actually while I was at uh, my last gig on the client side, I was innovation director at Mars, the candy company. And uh, so that's where I met the good ideas to go folks. And it, uh, we hit it off really well. And at the right time, it just made sense for me to, to jump and, and join the dark side as a consultant. And uh, that's, that's where I've been ever since. So yeah, I think that's a decent recap of, of my background. So what, as an innovation process consultant, right? That's the title I got down here. Yep. What are people? What are people bringing you? <clears throat> excuse me, bringing you on to to help with? Like, what, what does the workflow look like? Typically? Yeah, yeah. So we're at the. Um, a lot of people have heard this idea that for every product you see on the shelf or service or whatever that that launches, at some point way back upstream, there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of ideas. Right. So we're the, we're the hundreds of ideas folks. We get involved very early. We help our clients determine if they, if they need the help, even like where to play, where to hunt, uh, what are the big areas to take a look at? How can you think about those big areas differently than your competition is? And, and not necessarily accept the rules of the game, but actually think even up front, is there a way that we can um, define our challenge differently so that we're deliberately not thinking about this opportunity exactly like everyone else is in our industry. But then once you have that going on to say, all right, let's now, it, it's a, it is a Darwinian process. It's, it's very evolutionary in that, I, I guess it, relating to sports, it's, it's much like a tournament. So, you know, we, we just wrapped up, um, you know, the NCAA, you start off with your, you know, a uh, few dozen teams at the beginning of the tournament and then pretty soon you get down to the elite eight and, you know, the final four, et cetera. Uh, that's, that's not too different than what we do in that the reason why you want to have hundreds of ideas is because you're really hoping to have thoughts that aren't obvious. You want to get beyond just the most, you know, just right in front of your face, those ideas that are right, you know, in front of your feet and really get into places that, that aren't obvious because that's where real value can be found. 
And so what we say is, you know, what we, we've seen the research and the two things that really make any kind of innovative innovation effort successful are first uniqueness and then secondarily uh, relevance. So it has to be unique. You have to break through somehow. And you don't get that if you're only playing with the most obvious starting points and early ideas, you know, from the get go. So you really need to push it and almost kind of get this. Uh, it's it's almost kind of like brute force. You know, you get better ideas because you got hundreds of ideas. You don't you don't go to the hundreds of ideas just because it's fun, uh, which it is. But you do it because it's effective. And then by covering more territory than you ever would have imagined, you will start to have those thoughts you didn't before. You really start finding these forms of uniqueness that set you up. And then once you have that, you can figure out how to make it more relevant. So it's neat, it's cool, it's unique, but then is there actually a role for it in my life in any way? That's where you go to work and then um, make the case and build out from that point of uniqueness. So that's, that's kind of where we play. We go from very early on just through the initial stages of concept development and get into some testing, you know, to see what out of everything we generated, what's rising to the top and why. A while back, we had Melissa Schilling on our podcast, mm-hmm. an author of Corky and a innovation prof- professor at NYU. And she looked back at all these historical innovators and found different characteristics to, you know, that separated them and made them stick out as creative geniuses and really kind of innovators for sure. And it's almost like you're trying to, instead of looking back towards the past, you're trying to get people to apply these different things to really unlock their creative genius within. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with with uh, with Quirky, and I really applaud her effort to try to understand what is there, uh, and what I think what the real value of it is is so that we can learn as well, right? So I'm um, I don't know if I'm just I don't know. I, I, there's just some kind of counterdependent rebel thing in me that. I've always mistrusted genius myths. And I think we found as you've you know, dug in any further that the myth served a particular individual at a, at a key time. Not, I'm not saying it's cynical necessarily. Sure. It's just kind of the way humans operate and everything. But the more you looked into, like the great one I love is, is Picasso. And he gets the credit for so much. I mean, he was the pivotal artist of the, of the early uh, 20th century. Uh, he really did so much to move on from kind of representational, from impressionism, then on into abstract art and everything. But the most crucial part of his development was done in tandem with um, his buddy Brock. And so you, you can actually see ping pong between Picasso and Brock for this extended period as cubism is getting worked out. And, and there were certainly times where Brock was ahead of Picasso. And in fact, if you didn't have names on the placards next to the art pieces, there's a pretty good stretch where you wouldn't be able to tell what came from Picasso and what came from Brock. But who knows the name Brock now, unless you're you know, enough into that to, to have done the work and, and found that out. You know, Edison was great, but his chief genius, I think, was organizational, not necessarily uh, just strictly technical, Right he set up the lab that had all these workers in it that then could really, you know, everyone's heard about, you know, his, his thousand failures to get to the light bulb. That was not a lone guy 
you know, getting three hours of sleep a night for extended periods to, to do those thousand experiments. That was his team. And, you know, Edison is not Edison without kind of that organizational insight to, to get more people working on it. And, you know, I guess it made sense just to make it look like it was more just Edison. But so the value in these genius myths is to distill whatever we can out of that that we then can use. I really want to, I, I get back to this idea that, that, you know, our birthright is innovation. And then we have these things that, you know, some of the things we talk about in the book and outsmart your instincts, we have these inborn instincts that don't serve us well and that we can overcome with a little bit of, of awareness and then some very simple tools to, to get past them. But then certainly there are social and cultural um, things as well that kind of drive the innovation out of us. You know, you, you ask kindergartners, how many of you are creative? And almost every hand goes up. By third grade, you're starting to strip away maybe, you know, a third, and it's only two thirds of the, of the class would put their hand up. By the time- That's right. Yeah, exactly. Hey, uh, uh, yeah. I was laughing at his first statement. He's like, I was a nerd. And I'm like, why, do you, why, why is it that uh, you, to be creative, you have to be classified as nerdy? But that was just my kind of observation. Uh, well, well, this is what I'd love to, I'd love to bust that. I, yeah. I would well, I, I really well, want I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think the creativity thing is something that kind of just, um, you know, I mean, but uh, you're totally right. Like in the mainstream kind of educational circles that we're going into, like no longer are we really favoring innovation. It's almost like, uh, you know, the idea of like kind of factory workers, like can you put all these things together and kind of, uh, you know, like are you uh, creating yourself as a, as a cog in the bigger system? Um, exactly. The other question I was going to ask you on, um, doesn't history bestow a lot of the, uh, you know, this idea of uh, greatness and genius? Like I sometimes wonder if like the people that are doing these things in the innovation know how innovative they are or is it something where you know a hundred years from now we can look back and kind of bestow this because you were talking about Picasso but I mean look how many of these great painters were uh, starving artists and you know uh, you know drink themselves to death or just you know uh, think that their their art is never going to amount to anything and then all of a sudden you know 10 15 25 you know 100 years later all of a sudden people are you know expanding on this genius of these individuals who had no concept of what they were really doing at the time. Yeah. So, I mean, this is perfect. And so in our book, we talk about eight specific cognitive biases that we see causing too much trouble in innovation, but certainly there are more and two that I think fit with what you just mentioned are both hindsight bias. So once something has happened, we can look back on it and go, oh yeah, yeah, either I knew I was going to happen or, oh yeah, that's kind of obvious it was going to go that way. We, cr we create these stories for why things are because we're pattern-seeking pattern critters and meaning just means an awful lot to us. Um, and then the other one is, you know, survival bias. So you take the survivors or um, extending it a little bit more, just whoever did best out of any given situation. And then you, you um, how you describe how they did it is a good guess. And I think there are ways to make sure that, that much of that is actually helpful and, and translatable to other people. But the fact is we don't, it wasn't a controlled experiment. We don't know if those really were the variables that mattered most, or if that those were just kind of, you know, they were a lot, some of those uh, attributes, some of those uh, descriptions, whatever, just happened to come along for the ride with the survivor. And so, we, you know, it's, it's just, it's good to, 
And not everyone's good at this. And we don't, we don't do a good job of teaching this or modeling this enough. It's good both to be really humble in your assessment of reality, and, but yet have enough of a working model that you can actually take action. Uh, and that's, that's super critical. Uh, and too often you see the errors on either side of that. Uh, there's no humility at all. And, you know, this, this kind of absurd belief that how I see the world is actually how the world is, which is we can, you know, we can, you know, bust through easily enough. Or the other extent, uh, because it's hard to get a real grasp on reality, I'm just kind of paralyzed and I can't do anything. The truth is in the middle, and you need to be able to work with both um, both of those extremes. And I think much of life is just kind of working within tensions like that, these kind of these these opposites that um, are important to factor in. But above all things, just keep moving. You know, keep doing stuff. Do you, Do you think it helps to have like a um, almost like a laser focus, almost to have blinders on, or do you think it helps to have kind of a a, a bigger global awareness of what you're doing? Um, my dad and I used to argue about this kind of way too frequently. Uh, <laughs> is it mere fact that like you know we've had great men at some of the most important times of our life, or are the facts that like these major pivotal points in our history have just had you know been the ones that have kind of forged and brought these people out that would have you know like if uh, Abraham Lincoln hadn't been running for president, we would know him as the you know the president during the civil war and you know the abolition of slavery i mean is it just that he happened to be the right guy at the right time that made the right decisions or is it just a fact that like here's somebody who if that period of history had never happened he would just be another just kind of anonymous president in the whole thing so i kind of always wonder with some of these things like you have intel uh, you know you know great individuals that we never hear anything about or a person that might not be as you know intelligent innovative and as wonderful let's say it just so happens that the circumstances are what we remember remember them for. So that I think my, my issue with the gal yeah. we had on, like she went through all these, you know, incredible innovators. And I just was kind of wondering, I'm like, is it just that these, these were the guys that happened to be, you know, in the forefront, this is what they were doing, or were they people that carved out a completely unique market or a new piece? I think what's helpful in any of this, so some of these answers, some of these questions are unanswerable, but that shouldn't stop you. Asking them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, but yeah. that's why you argue them, yeah. and that's why, like, uh, yeah. you know, to have somebody on who's, you know, views this stuff, it's it's always cool for me to just to hear your, you know, your thought process on it. Absolutely. So I like I like just reminding myself that some of it's unanswerable, but that's not an excuse not to do anything. And I think you need to act as if a given approach is helpful. And so on this question of, you know, history is, you know, the great person, you know, paradigm, is that really what explains, you know, much or even a significant part of history or not? Would things have more or less gone the same way with or without that person? It's not answerable, but I think what we have to ask is what, how do we want to live our life? And I'm even open to the notion that there are, adaptive illusions that we can just kind of go with while knowing that, hey, we don't know for sure if this really is kind of the causal factor or set of factors, whatever, but acting as if they were seems adaptive. It's, they, it seems helpful. Uh, and what I've learned throughout the research on the book and just, just overall as an innovation guy now for, you know, uh, a while is that, um, you always need to remain humble 
but you always need to take action. And so it really just does come back to that, whether or not, you know, the great person theory holds, I, I don't know. I want to act as if what I do will change things. And in my experience, it really can and it does. And, and I just think it's, um, I think I'm healthier. I think most people are healthier if they are acting as if their choices matter. And, and, and if really being kind of conscious about what you want to create in the world is um, of any kind of consequence. I, I'm, I'm probably cherry picking the data in my own experience, but it seems like it does matter. It seems like, like having some sense, like what, you know, what am I, like what the hell am I here to do? You know, I'm I'm a little older than you guys, and yeah, I'm not getting. I'm trying not to get too sappy and maudlin about how much time I have left or not. But it's just so ridiculous how short a time we really do have to create something good, and we can't be messing around. I I, I mean, I really think like, what the hell are we doing with our life if it isn't to try to make things better in some way? If it isn't in some way uh, adding to the conversation in a helpful way. I don't know what else we're doing if we're not doing that. We're managing the chaos. Uh, Adam, I greatly appreciate your your view here because Luke, mm -hmm. his world exists on the galactic calendar in which yes. his, <laughs> lifespan, <laughs> his lifespan is nothing but a flap of a butterfly's wing. No, 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 no. The human, the existence of the your human race. <laughs> oh, the existence of the human race is just The human species, sorry. Oh, so yeah. He, I mean, we're not even a blip on the radar if you he, look at us. No, not since the beginning. Matters. But, uh, but I'm, I mean... I'm the, in matters camp. But think about this, right? Uh, um... The turn of the century, industrial, around the Industrial Revolution within the last, call it 118 years, what's called turn of the century. Look at the advancement within this last 118 years. That's kind of where uh, I kind of laugh a little bit and think about, like, look at the advancement within the last um, 118 years compared to, uh, you know, 2000 before that. Mm -hmm. I think they said that, like, the more books have been written in the last 20 years than have been written over the course of recorded um, human time. So it's almost like we're in this kind of spiraling, like, snowball thing. It was slow, it was slow, and it's speeding up. So... I don't know, man, maybe it's uh, the opportunity to do something so lasting, or maybe there's just so many more people doing things when, um, you know, I mean, really, who do we remember in history? I mean, think about one of the most influential people ever. Nobody, I mean, but people talk about uh, Genghis Khan. I mean, influence more people. I mean, think, but uh, that's another one. Whenever I think of like innovators or people, how it really mattered. If you ever go back and read the history on Genghis Khan, I think it's like 10% uh, of the people within that area still have a direct lineage for him. You know, which oh, is yeah. father's son, yeah. father's son, which was that Y chromosome deal. Was that it? Our, our man got around. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, he would, you know, like, uh, and it was he and his brothers. I mean, they it just, you, you look at like the, I mean, going in and slaughtering a quarter of a million people and then, you know, absorbing the rest. I mean, it's just insane to list, to read the history of that guy. Uh, but like, you know, I always think about for these people that, you know, stand the test of time. I mean, we were talking about the Bible, right? Wasn't that us arguing about the Bible? Like all the time. Yeah. Like, yeah. so, so we argue, like, I think, uh, why can't Jesus Christ have been just a, uh, just a dude, just a dude who just was, a uh, uh, With a bunch of other guys doing great things. Yeah. Was just like a solid dude who put out some really good writings and wanted to help people and was a great man. Why is it that uh, all of a sudden he had to ascend into God? Like, why, why couldn't he just been a normal dude? Would it have been any much less meaningful for his teachings if he was just a, a normal dude who just wanted to do good things? Well, I think what's great about so much of this is that an awareness of history and historical figures gives us the opportunity to extract from any of that whatever we want to and ditch what 
we can't. So, you know, Bruce Lee, I'm going to slaughter the great quote from him, but um, his whole idea about how uh, Juke King Do was put together was adapt whatever is useful that you see, discard anything that isn't, and then be sure to bring your own thing to it. Do you know what... Uh, uh, Are what we talking uh, about Dune now? I was going to tell you, <laughs> as a nerd, then he would know that the Fremen, uh, the Dune were based off... Uh, the Fremen who were in the, the characters in the Dune from Arrakis are based off of the, the, the Fremen, which is discard what's useless, keep what's useful. Also, the theme for our power athlete methodology and really the training system I put together was based off of Dune and also Bruce Lee, where it was like, I went out and did all these ah, different training styles. I um, just, so cool. uh, these guys will laugh a uh, little history, but I, I played in the NFL for about a decade and uh, had an opportunity to train with all these people over the course of my life. And it was always, I saw things I liked and things I didn't. And then just over the course of, you know, 20 plus years of working with some of the best coaches, I put together this, um, you know, power athlete system based off of really it's the Dune books, which is the Fremen, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, God created Arrakis to train the faithful. So I took that piece and then also the idea of uh, discard what's useless, keep what's useful and, uh, you know, sharpen the blade. But yeah, even that, but that, even that's that perfect. Requires... And, and of course, I'm, I, I love the, you know, the, the origin of your methodology. <laughs> but even well, that requires... I played in the NFL and I'm a nerd. That requires context, too, because there is a lot of shit that's useful for other training goals, not the NFL, right? Like, uh, I don't know, I'm fucking thinking. For a guy, yoga might be useful because he's bound up, right? When done right, when paired right. But you didn't have to fucking do yoga to be an NFL guy, right? Uh, but you also have to remember, I mean, at six years old, when my dad dropped us off at martial arts, uh, the dude basically stretched us like you saw something out of, like, a uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme book. Yeah. And to the <laughs> point where, like, uh, I could still get into a splits even in my, like, late 20s and 30s, mm -hmm. right, wow. from the stretching I did as a kid. Uh, but you also have to remember uh, the idea of, like, I always thought about weightlifting is stretching with a yeah, heavy ass yeah. load on your back. So, I mean, you know, all these things kind of play into it, but, um, you know, the, the thing which is kind of makes me laugh. And I remember, uh, when I was pretty young, I think my mom was something like we, we used to always joke, you know, when you said nerds, all I could think of was uh, revenge of the nerds when ogres like nerds. <laughs> so we used to make laughs and my mom was like, uh, made a funny point. She's like, you know, uh, you know what nerds grow up to be? I'm like, what? She's like, usually rich, successful. <laughs> you know what the cool guys grow up to be? I'm like, no, she's like, not rich or successful. Well, you got to understand, this is also in our this era. This is a cool guy's opinion. Okay, this go, is in go our ahead, era. There was cool guys and nerds. But remember Twenty One Jump Street, the documentary, or was it Twenty Two? But Jump I was Street? always a two uh, double strapper. I always wore my double strap. <laughs> and do you know why? I'll tell you why. I wore my backpack on both straps because you can't run if you're going to have to chase somebody or get chased with a backpack on one arm. Mm -hmm. No, I was a double strapper. Don't get you me wrong. You were a single strapper. You <laughs> bro. Listen, first off, I started a BMX bike gang. In high school, I don't hell Satan's, which is from The Simpsons, but <laughs> you can't ride your bike with a single strap. Nah, you got a, a double strap. That's a true, true so statement. You, why did you unstrap as soon as you got off the bike? I would never unstrap. You gotta be ready. You gotta be ready. I was the double strapper. Tex, hey, listen, Tex. you kind of remind me of the kind of dude that probably just like carried like uh, like what are those like little like uh, cotton bags, you know, with the double strap handles. No, like, I just was more of a, a belt, and I just belted up my books. Not not following. Not oh, you mean like you mean you mean like like nineteen twenties? Yeah, yeah, with the ringlets <laughs> in your hair and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah high socks and loafers. It's yeah. <laughs> a good it's look. Called fashion. <laughs> what were they knickers? <laughs> that, that, that's what they called pants back then. Knickers, right? 
Uh, I'm sorry that we we get derailed. We just uh, we have so much opportunity to make fun of each other that anytime we get a chance to do it on the ra- I mean on the podcast we do it too. So oh Adam, that's great oh. and and by the way I uh, you know the most interesting stuff usually comes up in the de- derailings and if you haven't picked up yet I don't place a huge premium on linearity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do we. And yeah, we kind of bounce around. Adam, you, you talked about the value of action and doing something. And then one thing I appreciated about your book, you introduced these uh, these eight cognitive biases. But at the end of each chapter, you kind of gave a toolkit to yeah. really help each individual identify them or uh, work around them constructively. And so uh, I'd love to kind of go into that thought process of breaking down uh, the book to kind of give our, our listeners a preview. Oh, Perfect. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And and really, the book is just this insight that, well, I mean, just like as starting points, if if you're not having fun doing innovation, you're doing it wrong. And innovation isn't, it's back to this idea that innovation shouldn't be only for experts. It, I, it really is our birthright. We are that strand of DNA that does this incredibly well. And, you know, we because it was the time when all this was happening, but when when uh, Carl Linnaeus first you know started putting together um, different species names and everything, it seemed like the really important thing to tag us with was something that spoke to how wise and how intelligent we were. Therefore, Homo sapiens sapiens. And I think, you know, if we were to do this now, if there had never really been a name for our species and we're just coming up with it now, I would at least like to put forward that what distinguishes us, it's really two things that distinguish us from, from even the other hominids. And one is just that we are, our intelligence is not nearly as much individual as it is social. And so homo socialis might be a great way of thinking of us. But then the other, other thing that we do exceptionally well that really puts daylight between us and the other hominids is our creativity and what we can make. And so homo faber, you know, going back to the Latin. I would disagree with the first one. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I would think that like, you know, you look at primates, look how, uh, um, you know, group oriented they are. Like if you think about, you know, our closest relatives like chimps, uh, whereas I think um, one thing that kind of struck me based off of the innovation thing with the gal that we had, and I'm totally forgetting her Melissa, name, to Melissa, uh, is all of those guys were kind of um, loners. Uh, uh, like. Well, again, that's part of the genius myth. Yeah. So, well, uh, they, they, but, some, yes. So dig into so, that. Dig but, into uh, that yeah, but, uh, but in, in that piece, like, uh, they went back, like, um, you know, Mary Curie, and they were going through all these different, you know, when I kind of looked at it, like, they were all, like, there was this overarching kind of, uh, um, you know, fantasy, introvert, like, you know, society is here, and I'm kind of, like, back in. Like, the people weren't, I mean, I think she brings up Elon Musk, who was a total nerd, and then he got him a lot of money and got a better hairline, and now he's married to supermodels. I mean... <laughs> it's called uh, innovation, John. <laughs> it's, it's like LeBron James. Did you ever see his hairline? It was, like, back here, is and it, then all of a sudden it was... Biggest comebacks? Yeah, uh... big, biggest comeback in NBA history, LeBron's hairline. <laughs> LeBron's uh, <laughs> they posted it. It's pretty funny. Um, but, great. long story short, uh, but there, there was kind of this, um, yeah, the gene, and let's break the myth, but like that was one thing that struck me is that a lot of them were kind of socially awkward loners, which texts your genius quotient should be way higher than what Super it is. Super innovative over here. Oh, <laughs> oh. okay. Well, okay. I've got a, I've got a book to refer you to. And, and, uh, if you could get this gentleman on your podcast, I think you'd enjoy it. So well, maybe this, this amazing polymath named Joe Henrich, H E N R I C H, uh, 
was really kind of plagued with this question of what really does separate us from the other animals. And so this guy had, I, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but he has two PhDs and one master's in, in three separate disciplines. And I think they're e economic psychology and anthropology. So again, when I say nerd, I, that's relative. <laughs> but, nerds. So he went out to figure like what really separates us from the other animals. And he, he cites a study that was done in Germany, which I didn't need to mention that, but I just find it funny, um, which is they took a human toddler, a chimp and, a, and an orangutan and tested them on four different types of intelligence, causal, spatial, math, uh, quantitative, and social. And the chimp and the human toddler were neck and neck on causal, spatial, and quantitative. The orangutan just behind them. So like not even like a, all that significant a difference on those first three intelligences. Where the human toddler separated from the other three was on social intelligence. And so what they show is that even pre-verbal babies can teach each other. And so to break this down further, there's like an, uh, an examples of, you know, can the other primates teach each other stuff? Not really. It doesn't scale. So one bonobo might see another bonobo, you know, they fish for termites with sticks. And so, so one bonobo who just stumbles upon a stick that happens to have a hook on the end of it is going to start pulling more termites out. So the bonobo that sees that can draw some conclusions and go, oh, I need to go find a stick that looks like that. But then it never goes beyond the second bonobo. It never scales. There's, not, there's no mechanism for this to start to become, you know, any kind of geometric thing. And uh, what Joe Henrik says what, th that I love is that, you know, um, Newton had that great quote, if I see furthers because I stand on the shoulders of giants, and Joe Henrik says, if we see further, it's because we stand on the shoulders of hobbits. And it's the sum total of thousands and millions of just small changes from it, as many individuals that really pulls us up the mountain. And so social intelligence, or, or what he says, the other term for that really is culture, is what separates us from the other animals, particularly the other, the other hominids. And the name of the book is The Secret of Our Success. So wait a minute. If, uh, but aren't we kind of going through an interesting paradox right now with kind of this, uh, I mean, almost like the death of culture and the death of uh, community because everything is turned into this kind of virtual deal where now you have an issue where, you know, people have more community with what's happening online through, um, you know, like a Facebook or a social media than what they have in person. Well, it's how we choose what to do with it. Mm -hmm. I think, again, because of certain biases we have, such as negativity bias, all the bad stuff that's happening there is going to loom more largely in in its effect on us than the good stuff that is. I can personally say so much of my growth as an individual uh, since 19, since I logged on to AOL in 1993, whenever that was, mm -hmm. uh, so much of my personal growth has been because I consciously try to use the internet for what it can do for me and the arguments and the stupidity and like the this this balkanization of opinion and perspective and everything that we see too much i don't think is the real story and i agree with those who say hey any new technology is going to have this really awkward period up front i mean we are in the teenage years of of the internet 
it's not um we haven't really learned how to use it as well let, let me break that down not all of us have learned how to use that as responsibly as we could and as we should and i think eventually as more of us will get to uh again i now feel like making a case about cognitive biases loss aversion you know all these weird bugs in our in our cognition uh can really contribute toward that uh but so many i have so many good friends now with whom I have met in real life because we first had the contact on the internet. We started having amazing conversations and then it was like, Oh hell, I'm going to be in Boston, you know, on this date, let's get together, you know, let's, let's talk about this further. And so I, um, I just even look at my own, uh, personal learning network and I would not be nearly where I am were it not. Then so you come from a generation that would pick up a phone <laughs> like write a letter? No, I mean seriously, I'm, I'm in the same. How old are you? Uh, I'm ancient. I'm 55. Okay, so you're 55. So you come from a time when you would write a letter or have to like get a phone number and call somebody on the phone and be like, "Hi, I'm so and so, and I'm interested in information, you know, whatever." And people would talk on the phone. You're using it in the same deal. You're reaching out to people. You're sending emails. You're doing to set up some form of like dialogue. You're not just uh, logging on the internet in hopes of getting validation of your ideas, which is what I feel like a lot of kids today that didn't grow up within kind of the idea of having to pick up a phone and call people that a lot of times they develop their bias or their opinion in private. And then they go out in the internet to try to get justification or validation for their ideas. And then any type of, uh, I guess, conflict or disagreement in that idea, you know, just people lose their mind. And it's pretty amazing. Like I, um, I've never seen anything like what I've, I mean, kind of what's happening presently where people seem to develop these ideas in a vacuum and then they put them out for validation. If they're not right, then, you know, you're wrong. I'm, uh, you know, I have to be right. And it's like, dude, I'm, I'm just wondering where, where dialogue went to. Cause I mean, from a lot of times, like, you know, you have an idea, you put it out there, you, you get feedback and thoughts and you get other people's and you kind of grow as an individual, but it almost seems to be going in reverse. But I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to put words in your mouth adam but this is these biases are what drive the negativity it sounds of like that. availability bias right adam yeah well some of that is availability and confirmation mm -hmm. bias right so uh, go so, ahead so i i agree that we're seeing far too much of it but again even there uh it seems that problem seems larger than i believe it actually is because mm -hmm. we're going to pay more attention to negative sure. stuff and uh our threat detection apparatus is still so blunt and we make we still make no distinction between oh that person just dissed me on Twitter and Tiger, right? <laughs> you know the the same cortisol response in our body, the same you know adrenaline, the heart rate, you know everything that comes with that. It's not like we have you know seventeen different levels of of threat response. We really do have one. Is that real yeah. though? I mean, I, I guess I'm in bias, obviously. Uh, I just don't give a fuck what people like if people start talking shit on us if there's some donkey over the internet I like it and a real life donkey but I guess like it, I don't know. So where, where, where does that data come from? I don't know. I mean, response, uh, shouldn't like I, this is something you guys have heard me say. I'm like uh, everybody is 
Everybody has a right to an opinion. Not everybody's man, opinion has to be just your uh, opinion, uh, <laughs> man. <laughs> like, like everybody has a right to have opinion, but not everybody's opinion is the same, and not everybody's opinion has the same weight. Yeah, my like, opinion does. But well, not no, but like, uh, like I, I realize, like I might have an opinion about something, but if there's somebody who actually does this for a living yes. and like this is who what they do, mm -hmm. uh, I should value their opinion, sure. and then you know, at that, uh, and then I should be able to listen to it. The problem well, is, is when you have people that have uh, uh, like no practical knowledge of anything that mm -hmm. have this kind of space off like you know come up with this opinion and instantly yeah, they like yeah, I, saying, I, I just think like everybody deserves it just not every opinion needs to be weighted the same i assume there's certain opinions that have more weight mm -hmm. like we have an expert on innovation right he has an opinion on things he has a book we should listen to that and then hopefully uh increase our understanding and you know then redevelop like oh i thought this now i think this opposed from me sitting here and being like i don't know anything about innovation i never read your book but i'm gonna <laughs> argue <an> i'm <laughs> yeah. gonna argue what i believe to the ends of the earth because this is what i believe that i developed in uh in in my mom's basement with no inside uh outside influence but this is mine and my opinion matters so therefore my opinion weighs the same as yours because it makes me feel better like that's the fucking like like that's what we get into with people and i kind of scratch my head and i'm like that doesn't make any sense like when in history have we ever had this issue mm -hmm. but going to your former luxury of getting to speak with adam that is all made possible by the internet i'm not saying the internet's a bad what thing the fuck's the internet? <laughs> yeah, what the fuck's the internet i'm not i i think the internet has done uh more to connect people in you know at, at any time the you know mm -hmm. the exchanging the ideas i just am nervous for a generation of people that yeah, didn't yeah, know what life was like before the internet or email these other things because it gives you no perspective like uh to like like you remember like uh you know i remember when i had to go home and check messages and people left you a message in your machine, you went home, checked it, and you were like, it could be like an hour, it could be six, it could be two days. And be like, oh, fuck, I didn't get that message. Or when you said, hey, I'll meet you somewhere, you actually had to be there because there was no way to call and text them once they left the house. Remember, you guys don't remember pulling over and having to find a fucking pay phone. No, I, yeah, yeah I like, saying, yeah, you remember that. So, my bike, though. Yeah, on your bike bicycle, gang, on with your Satan's. biking. Uh, but like that kind of perspective, I think is is just kind of interesting. Um, you know, I remember you know driving with my dad, telling me like, hey, just enjoy the scenery out the window. And I was like, why? He's like, because I come from a time when cars didn't go that fast, and he, we didn't have air conditioning, so you drove with the window down, so you didn't hear the radio. And so, what did you do? You looked out the window. Like it just it just kind of like put some stuff in perspective for me, and that's why I always appreciated those things. Like to have some perspective of where we are, where we come from. I just am nervous for kids and for people that don't have that perspective. Well, let, let me ask you. Uh, so, uh, metaphors coming to me because that's part of part of what makes a, a person a decent innovator is having a, a pretty good facility with metaphor. And so I'm thinking of you know the power athlete methodology. Uh, I'm guessing some of it is, at least enough of it is intuitive so that people just don't, so you don't have a massive hurdle to overcome in terms of initial acceptance of it. Uh, and, you would think. <laughs> but, but, but then I'm guessing that there's enough of it that isn't intuitive that you have to kind of work people into it. And then, you know, you, there's, there's, I'm, there, certainly there are levels to it. And you don't give people level six stuff their first week, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think what we talk about in the book is that we really do want to outsmart certain instincts. Now, some instincts are great. And, and as, a, as an overall rule of thumb, any instinct can be helpful when the conditions under which that instinct 
evolved and then was selected for and then propagated, carried forward in the generations. Whenever conditions match or are similar to those conditions under which that instinct evolved, then that's still going to serve you well. Negativity bias is still great under times of threat because the, the body actually can start to take action even before the consciousness is engaged. And that's, um, that's, super, that's super helpful. I'm sorry, heater just went on. Can you hear that? No, you're clear. No, you're good. Okay, you're going to edit that out, whatever. Um, so it's, it's not like we're saying ban all these instincts. We're just saying be more conscious of them. And so when is a given instinct more helpful? When is it really detrimental? And so when we're doing innovation, mostly we need to be thinking in, in ways that are directly contrary to what our kind of our evolutionary um, endowment is. And uh, certain things that served our ancestors extremely well because life was lived. It, you guys all familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. Have you seen this before? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the base is just the basic physiological needs, safety, et cetera. You know, uh, three plus, four plus millennia ago, even going back further, because there's some good evidence that our, the basic structure of our cognition hasn't changed that much and probably, um, you know, neurologically hasn't really changed in, in, in probably about 10,000 years. But um, the big win back then was not self-actualization. Self like that, you couldn't even imagine what that was. The big win was surviving to another day. And the, the margin for error was much thinner. So negativity bias was super important. The body can take action even before the consciousness really triggers in. You hear the, you know, the rumble in the bushes. The, the, the smart person back then just got it, it, the hell out of there, established as much distance between themselves and that, that rumble in the bushes as, as possible. The inquisitive, the curious would go, hey, that, that sounds just different enough that I wonder if that is an opportunity. Uh, maybe there's a way for me to get some different perspective on it. Maybe I can go up higher, whatever, but I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to somehow explore it. The moment that anyone back then took that second option, they immediately placed their genetic fate at, um, you know, a, in, a, in, a, in worse shape. Uh, those who just got the hell out of there without even thinking about it, uh, we call great, 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 et cetera, et cetera, grandparents. And so we just need to understand what our starting point is and that still so much of this primordial, primordial baggage exists with us and we can just do better and you don't have to be an innovation person to you know to to be aware of some of the stuff and start to act on it uh but we do find it's especially important if you're trying to do innovation right so and so i'd love to i'd love to to uh co-opt you gentlemen let's get uh beyond you know power athlete methodology let's get the power cognition methodology going Ooh. and and uh and have trademark that trademark that and, yeah go for it we're getting great innovation here <laughs> that's right that's right and and really how can you up your game cognitively and how can you be a better manager of these amazing resources that mm -hmm. you were born with well i think that we could sell 
the uh, there's a cognitive like dosage of pills, like 400, <laughs> like, like <laughs> uh, remove your bias pill. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, retard your negativity pill. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Adam, the, the, the individual, at least that comes to mind, that could definitely benefit from recognizing bias is the coach. Like without a doubt, like the proverbial yeah. high school strength and conditioning oh. coach. I don't know if you played sports growing up. I did. So, you know, and even those guys still exist today that believe because, you know, fives are the only number well, that no, work. And but just like, like the, all it's, this. It comes back like um, somebody we know once said people fail at the margins of their experience. Yeah. And I think that it is such a telling piece. But, um, you know, and if you want to avoid failure, you have to keep extending your margin and push your margin out so far that it becomes, you know, impossible to fail. Uh, we constantly run into people that are, you know, their margin is so small or is, is so, I guess you could say, narrow or short, whatever you want to say, because their experience is so limited. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, they're so quick to step off like, oh, well, we can't do that. Uh, Bear Bryant didn't do that. So we were at a uh, <laughs> high school strength, uh, I swear, uh, high school strength conditioning deal in texas at a conference and we were trying to talk to these guys about what are you guys doing for your training and this guy's like well we do this program that i did and i was like where'd that come from well we got it from bear bryant so this is bear bryant i'm like you mean the dude with the hat like didn't like wasn't that like the 50s so so the strength <laughs> conditioning that you're going off of back in a time where water was weakness and all this other stuff like that's what you're going off of and i'm like do you believe that there has been no innovation in strength conditioning performance training anything within this last you know uh, millennia right let's say and uh it just it, it, like it just goes back like um and and i almost wonder if um if like uh, people are scared or fearful of innovation because innovation requires like uh, faith and process and, and extra risk. work and risk, that it's easier just to be like to put up and be like, well, uh, this person who is kind of a, you know, a notable person that I had contact with, this is what he told me to do. My learning stopped there because having to do any other innovation would put me at risk. So I'm just going to stop and put the wall up but there. But it's not even innovation, it's change. And I mean, they're not but, but aren't exclusive. They, I thought they, they were the be. same. I thought innovation, I mean, because nobody innovates backwards, do they? Like, isn't innovation change? Like, whenever I think of people innovating, no. I think of people changing the paradigm and extending it. I never see the innovation going in. Or maybe we are. Well, maybe what we're about not going back to the fundamentals. Is that innovation? Well, well, it's, it's, or is just not being so, a crazy person? Yeah. So, if I, I really wish I had a nickel for every time I got into a conversation about what innovation is, because people, people love to really to define it. I think it's really simple. I think innovation is the introduction of any helpful novelty. It has to be new and it has to be helpful. If it doesn't hit both of those, uh, it could just be kind of fun creativity and it's not particularly helpful, but it's kind of, you know, eh, cool. Or if it's helpful, but it's not new, then it's indistinguishable from what we already have. Now, maybe I'm just learning mm -hmm. and to learn something that's already existing could be really helpful. But this idea of, of like just... <laughs> following in bear bryant's uh footsteps like exactly i think bear bryant would have found that ridiculous because yeah. he certainly he certainly was an innovator sure and so again it's i think why do you study why, why does um like you know uh mattis secretary of yeah. defense he was uh he got the name the warrior monk because he would travel with five thousand books yeah. everywhere and this guy's just, I mean, uh, how dedicated, I mean, just ridiculous. And and he would hear you know, other commanders, people below him say, 
Yeah, that's amazing. I don't have time to read. And Mattis, if you ever had the opportunity, he would he would just he would dress them down. He would say, "You have lives under your command. You can't afford not to read. You need to understand the history of military so well, so that you can make better calls. You can make better decisions." The idea of a life being lost because you hadn't been exposed to something that's fairly obvious to someone who had done his or her homework is just that's that's ridiculous. And so I just think having a bigger toolkit is better. The good news is you don't it, you don't have to be this you know this. Uh, I mean, you also it, know that uh, my most favorite Mattis quote was uh, always carry a knife because you never know if there's going to be cheesecake. Or you got to stab somebody in the face. <laughs> there you are. <laughs> right. But again, it's, it's about that, preparedness, right? Yeah. I mean, like yeah. cheesecake or killing people. Like, and that's I why you have that. the knife because, dude, somebody might have cheesecake and you got to cut the key to cheesecake mm-hmm. and I might have to stab this dude. I just eat the Well, whole I cake. love that those are two, uh, two actions that are actually on his plausibility radar. I, dude, I, I love it. It's like everything from cheesecake to like, like you know, like basically killing somebody, um, everything in between. Like, yeah. I, I, yeah, so, I mean, so I guess, I guess, so, you know, as grandpa now here talks, if, if there's something that I'm pretty dedicated to for the rest of my life, it's helping more and more people get this and being better prepared, but understanding that some of the biggest gains, I mean, as, as is with, uh, you know, our, our physical being, some of the biggest gains are early on, like some of the most important stuff you can do for your health is, yeah, it's three or four things you can start doing immediately. And the biggest delta, the biggest uptick in improvement is going to happen right there. Same thing cognitively. If you can get to work on even three of the biases that we talk about and start implementing that, start looking for when it's coming up. And that's, again, once you're aware, then you start to see it everywhere. You know, the the purple Volkswagen bug phenomenon. Um, but that's, you're just going to see differences quickly and then you're just going to be, you will be more effective because you're acting more consciously. You're actually engaging your prefrontal cortex much. You're not operating so much from the amygdala. And that's my hope. I want us to become better managers of that great hardware that, that all of us have, were born with. Is there such a thing as going overboard, right? We become aware of this and then we start to make decisions to not fall into that. Is that outsmarting your instincts or <laughs> it's a hack? I love it. You're going meta. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I think it's, it's, uh, so even there, that's, if you understood this sufficiently, what you just described is just a loss aversion ratcheted up to a higher level. Uh, I think the reason why you want to do this is to free. So there are two types of freedom, right? Freedom from and freedom to. And what we're really trying to get people to is freedom to, not so much freedom from. The freedom from stuff can be accomplished, uh, I, I believe, reasonably quickly. And then that then you have all the freedom to do things, to do new things, to try new things and everything. I think that's where we want to spend more of our time. Because loss aversion, again, you understand why it evolved. You understand why status quo bias, negativity bias, confirmation bias, you know, all of these are there. You can see it's, it's all too easy to figure out why our ancestors, ancestors benefited from these. But then you just have to say, do conditions now match those same conditions? And the answer mostly is no. So let's just, we'll know those are always there and that's great. But to be overly reliant on them and to be inappropriately reliant on them 
it's just not good cognitive management and, and we can do better. So do you foresee a time? <clears throat> will that cognitive condition ever level out with the social condition? Does, did uh, I phrase say that a little correctly? bit more uh, in the sense that, you know, we have this hardwire trip on a tweet that talks shit on our fucking, you know, my pink tie at a mismatching my purple shirt. I don't know. You, you know, it, it, it trips that, that response that like, Oh, there's a cheetah over there licking his chops. Like there's, <laughs> there's this mis there's this mis mismatch. Will, do you think that gap will ever close? I think it, it, you used a really important word. And uh, again, it's just like, it's not going to, certainly it's not going to close if you're not conscious of it, of, of what's going on here. So the more you can get kind of the peek behind the curtain, but then take a moment, understand that your reaction is largely the amygdala, right? And so that's not the best part of you. So I don't know if you've been exposed to Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. So, so yeah, so he, Kahneman talks about system one thinking and system two thinking. System one is the reactive, the instinctive pretty much driven by the amygdala and, you know, kind of the lower uh, parts of, of our brain. Um, that's where the cognitive biases are found. That's, that's where all those automatic scripts are found. That is the realm of automaticity of, of really, you just do it, you know, stimulus response. There's no real gap between stimulus and response. System two is more of the prefrontal cortex. And that is the slow thinking, not the fast thinking. So when you, when you get those kind of ridiculous comments on Twitter or whatever, you just have to recognize that that didn't come from the best part of that person. I think Twitter too often, again, no, no technology has a valence in and of itself. Fire can kill people, destroy homes, or it can you know, create great meals for us, right? So Twitter, like fire, can really do some amazing things for us, or it can just be this, just this, uh, it's people at their worst. You know, I, I, I see too much of the latter, not as much of the former as I'd like to. I think it's, the, it's one of the coolest, pure media of exchange that, that we could actually create. I've been turned on to so much really good thought. Here's a link. Here's the context behind the link. That's amazing. I had no idea. Or this reactive crap that you're speaking about. But so, so when you see that, will you ever get so inured to it that there's a party that goes oh that sucks uh, i don't know but i think you can get closer to that i think you can recognize what the source of that is and it's not that person's best thinking that's that's someone being totally reactive system one thinking fast thinking uh and so i like to cut people slack i had a a, a buddy uh earlier in my life while i was going to grad school i managed a, a, a store and one of my sales guys was this good old, I went to Indiana University. I was there when Bobby Knight, speaking of reactivity, uh. coaching. <laughs> I was in Indiana. With last I love Bobby I Knight. I'm a Bobby Knight fan. I think he's Well, great. I got to tell you, I didn't want to be, but I got sucked in. But I was there for the last time Indiana won the, uh, the championship in 87. Anyhow, this, uh, this sales guy was this good old boy from Bedford, Indiana, 30 minutes south of, of Bloomington. And we were just talking one time about, you know, getting along with people. And uh, Tug Bill, I have to cite his name because this is Bill's law. Tug said, Adam, you can get along with anyone if you'll spot him two character flaws. And I just had this moment where, I mean, that really was like a parting of the clouds and just like crystalline insight came into me. 
And I thought, Tug, that is so good. Because I know I certainly, certainly more than two character flaws. And I, and I recognized almost immediately when I'd been the recipient of people's um, patience. Character flaws? Or he just no, said any no, character no, flaws? No, it's not, it's any, not two. any two character. It's, I it's, just wanted to know what this hillbilly was saying where were the character flaws. Well, you just spot them any of their two. Why any not? two. Or, any. you know, if you're really, 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 really patient, you could say six or seven. I'm exactly. looking at text. Exactly. Uh, and yeah, John, don't, don't even get me started on you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you don't cut them off after two. It's just the I, No, no. I, I, I just usually when people say that, like, uh, you got to spot them two character flaws. Which and uh, yeah, I'm a, always like, a and B. <laughs> because the funny part would be if uh, the um, the failure on that deal was if they told you what the character flaws that they would spot people like, uh, you know, he talks too much and uh, always drinks all my beer. Then you're yeah. like, oh, okay, well, yeah. okay, I can spot those. Uh, you know, the, you, the character flaw would be are like, you talking he, about he, anyone he, in this room? <laughs> he, he steals money out of my pocket and borrows my trailer without asking, you know, like, uh, yeah. No, but I mean, that's just the idea. It's, it's recognizing where we're all coming from. And that simple idea, I think, actually matches up really nicely with, with some behavioral science in that, um, you know, this, this idea of naive realism, the idea that we all believe that we see the world as it actually is. And of mm. course we don't because we're finite and we can't. But that it's easier for us to spark, spot holes in the other person's cognitive game than it is for us to spot it in ourselves, mm -hmm. right? And so that's my takeaway from that. And so when I've met someone and I start to see one or two character flaws coming out, it doesn't throw me off anymore. I go, cool, we're on track. This is an actual human, right on, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so I think it's, um, you know, a little bit of humility, a little bit of patience, um, it really goes an awful long way. And again, I'm now talking about things that aren't this fast reactive system one, you know, bullshit, but it's actually trying to summon the better part of us. So anyhow, automaticity can be super helpful if we're playing in sports and we're so well-trained that we don't have to think about something yeah. and mm -hmm. we can just perform fantastic. But then there are other, other points even within a sport where we want to make sure we are being especially thoughtful. But again, it's, it's having that bigger toolkit so we can, we can discern, we can discriminate and say, what's the best tool for me to reach to right now? Yeah. Big, I guess a big part of what we do is no matter the sport, just get all of our athletes we're working with improve their ability to just move. Yeah. Then we hand them off to the sport coach to get real specific. But if we can kind of minimize their, their missteps, make them jump higher, run faster, then we provide them more opportunity to be an asset on their team. Right on, right on. And I think uh, the more people can get, get comfortable with struggle and effort, and again, loving something enough that you're willing to suck at it for a while, um, I think that's massive. And I... I, I try not to suffer too much. I try to spot my own the holes or, or predispositions in my own game. And, you know, it's easy to, to succumb to old man, um, you know, oh, this next generation, no, it's all going to hell. Uh, no, that's just bullshit. Yeah, and, but it, and every I, generation I, says that, don't they? I know, I, I mean, know. And, you, and you'd think you'd learn from that, though, right? Yeah, I mean, every generation's like, oh, these kids. Uh, I remember watching the season one of Mad Men. Never finished the whole series, but, like, it was hilarious to see 
all those, you know, them frame all the arguments we had of like the, of that era when that show was, came out, but back in the fucking. Well, know. I mean, there was a. I remember I was sitting in one of my classics class at uh, uh, at Berkeley, and they the professor put up this like you know like quote that um, you know like up on the transparency up on the on the big screen, and it was like uh, you know these kids are unruly, they don't respect their parents, and this like went through all these things, and uh, the professor asked, he's like, you know. When do you think this was, you know, like, a, like who do you think said this quote? And they were like, our parents. And it like looked and it was like 700 BC. And it was this, uh, <laughs> it, it was this uh, a Greek philosopher that was writing about, you know, like how like unruly these kids are today and they have no respect. And he was like going through all this stuff. No respect. And it was like, you know, they've, uh, Rodney Dangerfield. They've, you know, <laughs> they've given over to partying and loose behavior. And he like went through all this stuff. And you're like, oh, it's probably, our, you know, my parents or something, you know. And it was like 700 BC. And you're like, what? So, I mean, it's like, it, you know, yeah, every, kids are dipshits. Every, I know. I have I, them. Well, I am one. Yeah, no, and I, and I realize they're dipshits, but it's like, uh, you know, people, you know, human nature, bias, the mm -hmm. whole deal. I just sometimes, um, I think the, the interesting thing with bias and some of the stuff is, uh, you know, like preconceived notions or inputs or, you know, how you're put together. I, I would wonder if uh, when we look at some of the different uh the different biases if it's uh if if they're all like kind of cultural base or you know are they biases because they're universal so the great the great work um you know starting with kahneman and tversky um i think it shows out it's been it's been validated across so many different cultures that i think most of the work shows that this is just human stuff and again, it has really, really deep roots. Like, you know, you don't have an instinct really from a habit that your great-great-grandfather developed. You have an instinct from, you know, from uh, 5,000 generations 10,000 years ago, you know. Uh, and that's, that's and, and the, the metaphor is just like, and, and you guys know this certainly, uh, it's really easy to grasp. Most people understand that our bodies are still hardwired for a reality of caloric scarcity. And it's now caloric overabundance that has, you know, too many of us in trouble. Uh, our bodies, there, there is this mismatch. The word mismatch is absolutely huge in all of this and, and recognizing the various mismatches. You know, our bodies still haven't, have, have not caught up to this reality of caloric overabundance. So we still hoard fat. We put on weight really easily, most of us, many of us. I'm, I'm speaking as an endomorph. I've got, you know, Charles Barkley and I have the same, essentially, you know, rib cage structure. <laughs> um, Charles Barkley, yeah. good, dude. good dude. Yeah, I love, I love Chuck. Anyhow, uh, we're, I, think we're, I think we're age peers as well. Anyhow, um, so our bodies are born that way. And, and now we just need to understand, hey, feeling hunger could really be a threat to our ancestors, but they manage it well because they could go without food for three days or so. They had to have water. They had to have some form of liquid more, more often, but they could go, you know, three plus days without any food or maybe even more. So having fat stores to draw down, you know, during those times was really helpful. So feeling hunger now is not an existential threat, you know, but we don't, our body doesn't really understand that. So being aware of, again, where we came from, why we have the predispositions predispositions that we do, but then so we can do something about them uh, is just absolutely vital. And I just want, you know, I want everyone to, you don't have to dedicate yourself to science or to spending an, a whole lot of time on these kinds of issues 
to get some real benefit from it. Study it enough, understand it enough, so you can kind of spot what's going on and then you can take the right sort of action with an expanded toolkit. So when it, com <clears throat> when it comes to these biases, do, or biases, whatever. Biases. Do, yeah, yeah you got, yeah, got it right the first time. The bi yeah. um, Does <laughs> Is there any sort of, does it, is there any parity in physiological if you're, let's say you are a healthier individual versus an unhealthy physically individual or well, sick individual, does, does that affect your cognitive bias and your ability to Isn't there to a bias recognize? against things that are different? I mean, I think like that's kind of what I've realized is that people are biased against well, things that are different of, than them, but right? I'm not really going there. So when it, but when it comes to like, if someone who was like, let's say healthier in shape versus someone who's decrepit, is there a difference in bias? Well, I would say, I mean, going back to the, the ideal of, uh, of, of the ancients, of the Romans, right? You know, the term men sana and corpore sano. So healthy, healthy mind in a healthy body. I mean, the, this is the ideal. Mm -hmm. uh, if, and, and more and more, the data that has, has emerged, um, I'd say in the last probably 20 years on the effect of physical health to cognition is massive. And so what, I, what I've learned is that uh, if I have any vanity, it's it's not necessarily, you know, how I look or anything. When I found out that staying in shape physically could extend my cognitive performance, that's what got me on my, <laughs> that's, that's what kicked my ass enough to actually make it a, a real point of it and yeah. saying, no, I want to be making important contributions in my 70s and 80s and, you know, universe willing 90s, whatever. I hope to learn something meaningful the week that I die mm -hmm. because I just think that's what I'm supposed to be doing. I think that's what most of us should be doing. So, um, yeah, physical health is definitely going to have an impact. And, and, and if you're doing it right, you know, it, but again, most of the, the, the biggest gains are made from small, from the earliest steps. Mm -hmm. So get in, you know, that two and a half hours of workout a week, I know I'm saying week and you guys are going, Adam, come on. That's a day. That's a day, man. That's a, month. a day. It's a month. <laughs> well, but, we're, but no, we're pacing ourselves. Two, we're pacing even ourselves. Two, even two hours a week kind of place sure, that you're sure. a bit of an outlier, right? Uh, but certainly you're going to be in better shape than to engage your mind if you're, mm -hmm. if you're doing some, some certain minimums on, on the physical side. I feel like, you know, John, we, you had a talk, I think one of the early symposiums about social responsibility yeah. and understanding like th this is for you to be a contributing member to your little social circle or network, or maybe even the broader, th this stuff, some of these understanding and like you said, recognizing these biases can, can make that a much more enriching social construct. Right, unless you yeah. get found wrapped well, up in that echo chamber and everybody's sharing the same. But that's bias. One of the, so, that's so one the of idea them. is that if uh, if you have the or let's see, if you are in a position to invoke change, you have a social responsibility to be that change. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of like, hey, like I can make a difference. So therefore, like uh, because I can and I'm and, and I'm aware of it, like I have enough self awareness to know that I can do change and I can do it, then like I have a social responsibility to do change. Like I'm always uh disappointed where people like have the ability to make change, 
they know they can make the change, but they do nothing to make that change. And I think, or like the change is extremely hollow. Like my favorite example is like the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio showing up in Paris and like, you know, giving this talk about the environment and then getting on his private, you know, getting in a helicopter and flying out to his uh, diesel, um, what yeah. is it, like like the big diesel boat that's burning like, you know, 10,000 pounds. What's that? You're hitting your head. Yeah. Well, it just hurts me to hear stuff like this. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. The, yeah, the, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, and then he gets out of his helicopter and he flies out on this like you know three hundred foot diesel yacht that's basically just burning in the in the harbor, and it's like dude, the thing's putting out like ten thousand gallons an hour, and like they went in like the pollution deal, and like you know here the guy is getting up yeah, and like carbon chastising people on like the environment and this, and then the guy gets on a boat that's you know like you but, know. But my, but my platform is so powerful. Well, but like and and to me that. Uh, um, what was the way the age old one where, uh, you know, from uh, Goodwill Hunting when he's like, well, you'll be serving, you know, my kids fries on our way to a skiing trip, at, you know, uh-huh. and he's like, yeah, but at least I won't be unoriginal, uh-huh. which is kind of what <laughs> like, like, like to me is it like goes through my whole mind with everything. Like I always think, yeah, I hear it, but at least I won't be an unoriginal dick like you. And to me, uh, that kind of like the the fake social responsibility where i'm going to do these things because i think people expect me to even though i don't live the code and like you know like we were listening to uh it to me is just it's so fucking transparent and it just destroys every fucking shred of uh anything good they say when like all of a sudden there's just it's just it's fucking hollow you know yeah and and life's too short not to strive more and more to have integrity in in all of it right figure out what your values are and then do everything you can to act in accordance with them you know and and again i think you we suffer from this illusion that um we just have all the time in the world and we don't life is life is ridiculously short and And so it ends it it, and what people never never talk about is uh the finality of when it ends. Like, yeah. this is like the craziest thing. Like my, my dad passed away pretty recently. And, uh, I just remember like, like, look at all the work you've done, everything you've done 80. And then all of a sudden you're here one day and you're gone the next. And all you have is the mark and like the finality of it. And like, that's what my mom and I were talking about. She's like, it's so final. I'm like, isn't it? It's like a movie ending. Like it's it. Like the lights yeah. go on, you get up and leave. Like there's no extended scenes. There's no this. I mean, it's like you had your two hours to tell your story when it's over that's it. And that's all, that's all that you have. And how do you want to, like, how do you want to be remembered in that piece? You know, what do you want to create in those two hours? Yeah. And, and, and more importantly, like what, like, uh, you know, like, what do you want to have people take away? Like they say that the, uh, you know, the mark of a great man isn't what he accomplishes. It's the effect that he has on, on others through time, because, you know, uh, you can't take it with you. You know, there, there's no points for chiseling richest man in the cemetery. The ancient Egyptians tried to take it with them and they couldn't fucking do it. (laughs) So like all of this shit is just a way of keeping score, but everybody ends in the same place. What do you want to be remembered as? Do you want to be like the, uh, who was it? Like, uh, they're making that, uh, was it the Hearst movie? Um, no, it's not Hearst. It's oh, um, J. Paul Getty. Yeah, the J. Paul Getty thing where they, you know, the son did the whole deal and he goes, I'm not paying. And, you know, finally, like, negotiates because he figures out he can get a tax write-off. So, like, this dude that's so cheap, like, my favorite story of him was uh, he installed a payphone in his house because he was upset that uh, these freeloaders were coming over and using his phone. So this dude's like richest man on the planet and he installs a payphone. And so I was thinking about it. I'm like, that dude dies the same way everybody else dies. And forever they're making TV movies, all these other big Hollywood things about what a fucking cheapskate you are. 
and how like you are the mark of like, it just, I was like thinking to myself, like you think that guy's somewhere looking and being like, fuck, like this is how I was remembered. <laughs> Not as this like, you know, great person. Like, I mean, so, so think about, uh, you know, Stephen Hawking passes away. And, um, you know, like, uh, nobody was sad. People were like, man, that guy's contribution. I was laughing at all the different memes that they had out of, like, I don't know if you saw the one where it was, like, the stairway to heaven, and he's at the bottom going, fuck. <laughs> you know? But, like, I, I, like uh, people were so happy, because why? That guy wasn't supposed to make it past 30. And he made it to yeah. 78 years old and had this great, con you know, he had a sense of humor and was, like, everything he always put out was so insightful. And the guy passes away, and people were, like, celebrated his life like nobody was sad. Um, Adam, I, th I think that's Adam, a great way to go. Quote, you had a quote that I appreciated and wrote down here from the book. And go where you increase the likelihood of being truly remarkable or even better, indispensable. So yeah. I, uh, taking action, you know. Um, so I really I wrote it down in my notebook and I appreciate that quote there. Oh, well, thank you. I, I think that's, um, it, it, again, without getting overly cosmic here or anything, why the hell are you here? And what... Um, what can you create that, you know, at least it's going to be a little less likely that someone else will. What, what can you create that makes it better for other people? Uh, you know, your perspective. Um, so I, I don't feel I'm hypocritical when I say stuff like that. And at the same time, be humble, be curious, play, play with ideas. Um, but you know, uh, you know, Steve Jobs has a great quote. He says, you know, your life changes the moment you realize that this world wasn't created by people any smarter than you. And it is part of our, it is part of our wiring to be kind of the, you know, we're small group mammals. And so there's still part of us that, that even if, even if we are alpha, there's always an alpha above the alpha, right? And so it's just so easy for us to project goodness and greatness onto these other people and and to and to discount our own perspective and our own ability to create things that others just might never and so i think i just wish more people had a perspective i wish you know i, I don't know if you guys have seen this um the japanese concept of ikigai it's uh, life purpose it's the four circles I'm good at it. I love doing it. I can be paid for it and the world needs it. And where you can find the intersection of those four things, that's your life purpose. That's your ikigai. And uh, I just believe if more people were working on that, I can't imagine we'd see the, the political frabba-jabba that we see. Uh, I think rates of depression would plummet. I think, um, I mean, not discounting that there are certain physiological predispositions and everything, but it's always a physiology plus, you know, what's happening culturally or socially or, or you know, around us, right? It's, it's an environment as well as, as kind of what we're born with. But I just think if, you know, if we had 50 million more people in our country working on their path to Ikigai, I think we would see a very different culture. And I'm, and that doesn't, I don't think that necessarily slants it one way or another politically or, or whatever. I just think it's healthier. I think it's how we're, I think it's how we're built. I, I think we, you know, again, striving for the right things, you know, more kids getting the, uh, the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. Um, you know, all these things kind of come together. 
And it's what I'm going to spend pretty much the rest of my life working on, I think, is, is this kind of stuff, starting with innovation, but then, you know, taking some of those thoughts and, and trying to get it in front of as many people as possible. Adam, I do have one more, I guess, bias for us to throw in there. And it sounds like you're well aware of this and you're appreciating your process. And yeah. so the bias I'm referring to, the, the curse of knowledge and how y'all described it is experts, you don't fully appreciate your path of what it took yeah. to get to your position. So I guess how can we um, kind of make people aware of the curse of knowledge? I took a lot away from this, this chapter and I'd love to get your kind of insight right now. Oh, thank you. Well, I think just, just you know, the, the basic idea that, you know, once you're expert in something, your, your way of dumbing things down to someone who's entirely naive to it st still assumes away so much knowledge. And your idea of dumbing it down maybe takes it down to like a, a, a 301 or a 401 level in college terms. But because you're now not operating at the doctorate level, <laughs> you think you've done the job of, of making it accessible. Um, I think just even understanding that can be helpful. I think seeking out maybe people who are somewhere in the middle, somewhere at, at a midpoint. They don't know as much as, uh, as you. They don't have all the experience you do, but they know enough. They can still relate enough to those people who don't know anything about it. Uh, being in contact with people like that can be super helpful. Um, for me, it's that we... Look, the best we can do on any of these biases is try to mitigate their worst effects. We're never going to overcome them. That's kind of the that's kind of the downer. But just because, I mean, just as you know, uh, the mismatch between our bodies and and what's going on with calories, you know, I can understand that as well as possible. I can discipline myself, you know, all all the all the way. Uh, I'm still going to feel hungry at inopportune times, no matter how much of this I know, but I can be more conscious and I can make better decisions the more that I've done that. So with the curse of knowledge, one thing that we get to do all the time is take our work in front of, um, you know, test respondents who don't know anything about it. And then we get to find how much knowledge we were assuming away. What isn't clear, even when we, even when we know we have that task, we're always going to fall a little bit short. We'll take 10 concepts into testing and uh, guaranteed at least three of the concepts will have parts of it where people are going, yeah, really interesting. What the hell does that mean? You know? <laughs> and so for, for us, we're confronted with that so regularly that I, at this point, I, I just have to understand that's always going to be the case. So we can, we can always just do what we can to try to avoid that. And, and when you see that often enough, yeah, you, you do get better at that. Um, you know, having, you know, I have four kids, I have two grandkids, you know, uh, here with our, our, our grandson this week, you know, kids about six years old, just having conversations with him uh, and trying to get down to his level is, is amazing for me. It's so helpful. Uh, every, everything really is, everything you experience can be, used you know everything you experience can can inform you know the next actions that you take and so i always i'm just always trying to be open and uh try to see what the universe wants me to understand solid stuff man Boom. <clears throat> adam thanks for the time oh this is so much fun yeah it's been a good chat it was awesome
It well, was thank awesome. you so much. That was awesome. That's just a bias. That's just your opinion. The, the awesome bias. Yeah. This, <laughs> well, I mean, is he more awesome because he's on our show? Uh, yeah. I mean, that increases bi- yeah, awesome that bias. <laughs> yes, it does. Hey, I'll take I'll take all the awesomeness I can get. I uh, it's it's enjoyable. Life is just this ridiculously cool journey, and um, just trying to do it better, trying to be more helpful. I think is what it's all about. Well, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning in ing, ing. Adam. Hey, where, do, where can people find you? I mean, you author of outsmart your instincts. Uh, we got a podcast as well. Outsmart your instincts podcast, if I'm correct. Right. Yes, indeed. And then where uh, else, where else should people go? Good. Yeah. Uh, it, if you are, we talked about Twitter enough. Uh, if you want to find me there, I am at ad Hansen, a D H A N S E N. Uh, and yeah, I don't spend too much time there, but I'm, I, I've had some great conversations there and I don't let them spiral because we know how to avoid that. Um, the website, uh, ideas to go.com www.ideas to go that's spelled out T O G O. There's no numeral two. Um, yeah. And, and I'm always, I love, love, love talking about this stuff. And I'm always, I'm always excited to engage anyone on any question they have, because I, you know, I understand that what I do is weird and a little, <laughs> it's outside the experience of a lot of people. So I, I, uh, I understand if people are interested, that says something mm-hmm. and I ought to honor that interest. Beautiful. Awesome. All right. Well, thank that you is very it. Much. Yeah, thank you. yeah. Thank you for your time. Gentlemen. Thank you so much. All right. See talk you. to you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You heard it, folks. Go to ideas2go.com to see what Adam Hansen has been working on. You can also tweet him directly at A.D. Hansen. That's S-E-N. Or check out his podcast, Outsmart Your Instincts. Until next time, bye!